It's time for another edition of the Dave Pash Podcast. I'm your host, Arizona Cardinals play-by-play voice, longtime ESPN announcer Dave Pash. We are presented by BetMGM, the official sports betting partner of the Arizona Cardinals, and Gila River Hotels and Casinos. If you want updates on future guests and also relive some of the moments from our previous guests, you can follow us on Twitter, at PashPod. I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, and I didn't leave the state until I was 18 years old when I went away to college at Syracuse University. And then after that, I worked in markets primarily on the East Coast and in the Midwest until moving to Arizona in 2002. So when I took the job in Phoenix, I didn't know a ton about the inner workings of the organization other than the fact that they had been in Chicago at one point, moved to St. Louis, and then to Phoenix. And when I got here, the Cardinals were still playing at Sun Devil Stadium. Fan attendance wasn't high. But there was a buzz within the organization, a confidence level internally, from the marketing and broadcasting departments to the football side of the building. And what happened over the next decade proved that that confidence was merited. The organization had undergone a major transformation. With State Farm Stadium, the community involvement expansion, and then being a playoff contender on a relatively consistent basis, the Cardinals had totally changed. And the man behind the transformation is our guest today, Cardinals owner Michael Bidwill. A one-time ball boy, Michael grew up close to the organization, of course, with his family owning the team, but he spent a good part of his adult life outside the organization, working as a federal prosecutor. He rejoined the team in 1996, eventually became president, and now owner. We talk about the state of the NFL, his high expectations for the 2021 Cardinal season, his love of aviation and how that positively impacted the Cardinals. Michael tells some great stories about some of his favorite players, about all the time he spent with his dad. He also gets into Kyler Murray and his maturity level and J.J. Watt and how that free agent signing went down. So here is Cardinals owner Michael Bidwill on the Dave Pash Podcast. So, Michael, with the change to a 17-game regular season, the new TV contracts, it seems like the appetite for NFL football is at an all-time high. So, with that in mind, what are your thoughts on the state of the NFL right now going into the 2021 season? Well, Dave, thank you uh, for the question, and thanks for having me on. I think yeah. this uh, podcast is awesome. And uh, But to answer the question, I think the, the future of the NFL is very, very bright. We've got 10 years of uh, labor stability. We've managed our way through this pandemic uh, in an unprecedented way. The NFL was the only league to play every scheduled regular season game last year and to play its championship games on time and on schedule, on the original schedule. Nobody thought we could do it, but it was collectively the players, the owners, the league office, the officials, the coaches, everybody, you know, chipped in and did what they needed to do to accomplish that. But when you look at that uh, stability of, of, of having the agreement with the players, the 17-game season, in the growth of, of interest with our fans, we continue to make this, it's the greatest game that there is. And we believe, you know, let's give more to the fans. So there's more access, more regular season games now, more of a pathway to the playoffs for teams with the added uh, wild card for each conference. So I think it's very bright. And you'll just look at some of our ratings, you know, TV ratings Mm -hmm. around the draft, TV ratings around 
um, the combine, TV ratings around preseason, um, you know, we just blow everybody away. And, you know, we continue to work at making the game more interesting. And I think there are going to be a lot of things that contribute to that. And I know you're going to ask me a little later mm-hmm. about legalized sports betting, but my guess is that'll help contribute to interest as well. I, I want to follow up on one of the things you said about the NFL being the only league to not miss a game. And I was part of the NBA doing an NBA game the night it shut down and ended up spending some time in the bubble. And obviously the NBA took several months off and then started the next season late. You guys just plowed right through. And I'm just curious, when you were all having your conversations, how did that get finalized where you guys all said, you know what, we're going to just keep plowing ahead and we'll kind of figure it out. But we owe it to our fans and our sponsors and the players to continue as planned. Well, I think uh, it it started with Commissioner Goodell. I mean, uh, Roger just was determined, uh, especially when people said there's no way we could do it, that we would find a way. And so Dr. Sills is our chief medical officer for the National Football League. Uh, All the the medical community and then the relationship we have with an infectious disease um, specialist at at Duke University, uh, as well as others, the relationship that we had uh, and have with the the federal agencies that, that oversee uh, uh, the CDC and everything else. So we just worked very hard and then worked with some uh, private contractors that, who were going to be able to do testing for us, and they developed these protocols. That, that There was a real burden on our players, coaches, staff, uh, but we tested every day. We knew that we'd have positives. We just needed to identify them early and eliminate them from the pool until they were fully recovered and not infectious anymore. And so they put together a terrific plan, and there was a plan not only for the players and the coaches and keeping everybody safe, officials and and all the people that are around them on the field, uh, but also, you know, for fans, if we were going to be able to have fans. And some teams, including the Cardinals, were allowed to have limited number of fans in in the 2020 season. All right, let's focus on 2021. Now the camp and preseason are over. What are your thoughts on the state of the team heading into the Tennessee game? Well, I think uh, I couldn't be more excited about this season. When you look at uh, what we've built here and the terrific draft, um, but it started really probably a couple of years ago, drafting uh, Kyler, and then last year being able to trade for DeAndre Hopkins, as well as uh, you know this year in the offseason signing J.J. Watt, trading for Rodney Hudson, addressing some of these things that we needed to address on our offensive line, as well as giving him uh, an additional target with uh, A.J. Green. Uh, I couldn't be more excited. We need Kyler to further grow, and he's shown a lot of leadership through the offseason and training camp. But I feel really good about how they've prepared mentally. So I'm excited about week one. Uh, They're a good team, uh, the Tennessee Titans, and we're going to know what we're made of, and uh, I'm excited to get that going. What are your expectations? Because I I assume as an owner, your expectation every year is to win the Super Bowl. And if if you don't, then it's a disappointing outcome because everybody wants to win the title. Well, obviously, it's only one out of 32. So what are your expectations for this particular year? Well, I think every year the goal is to win the division and then to stay hot through January and get yourself to to the Super Bowl. And we've done that once before. We came short in 2015. 
But uh, I feel like we've got a team with uh, – we've really strengthened that defense. We've strengthened the offense. And a lot of it is about staying healthy, making sure we manage ourselves through the, the pandemic because we're still in it. Mm-hmm. We know there are going to be additional uh, infections this year. But, again, we'll be testing and isolating. And we've got everybody vaccinated. Uh, only one player is not vaccinated with us. But I think we've got a really good uh, plan going forward. Now we got to go out and execute and stay healthy. And it was clear that – Part of the plan was to improve the leadership and accountability in the locker room. How did you go about plotting that out? And you talked about the signing of J.J. Watt. Obviously, that was important. But how did you and and Steve Kime come up with the idea, okay, this is how we want to plot this out and plan to improve the locker room? Well, I think it's about, you know, growing the young leaders uh, that we have, Buda Baker, uh, Chandler Jones. There's so many great leaders that we have uh, on this team. And then making sure as we bring in new leaders, you know, DeAndre from a year ago, uh, JJ, uh, Rodney Hudson, they're all doing a terrific job. And then we make sure, you know, that we're asking the coaches to make sure that they're leaders in each one of those rooms. And they're doing it anyway. But we're really putting in an emphasis on it from top to bottom. And I think it's really showed. And it's given the space for those young leaders to speak up and to be able to speak to their teammates. And I think Kyler showed a lot of leadership. You know, in his third year, he needed to get comfortable, and he's gotten comfortable uh, holding his teammates accountable. Why do you think, I want to follow up on your comment on Kyler, in what areas have you seen him grow? Why do you think it took till now maybe to be a little bit more vocal? Well, I think, you know, it's natural with any uh, young player coming in. It's got to be an intimidating situation. You come in and, you know, 22 years old and you're expected to be the leader of the entire team, not just one side of the ball. And uh, it's going to take a little bit of time. And so I think he's he's done that. He's done a good job. He's organized things in Dallas where, uh, in the offseason. He's been communicating with his teammates. And then certainly at training camp, he's been holding them accountable out on the practice field. And you can see it and talking to his receivers, talking to his offensive linemen, talking to his running backs. You guys have done a great job of keeping things quiet. It's amazing because nowadays it's hard when you have a major trade or a major free agent signing in any sport for Schefter or Woj in the NBA to not get it. But the DeAndre Hopkins move last year and the J.J. Watt signing, it didn't leak. Right. How did you guys execute the J.J. Watt move? Well, I think part of it was it was important for J.J. that he wanted to, you know, keep things buttoned up. And that's sort of our M.O. That's how we operate. It's like, why talk about it uh, until it's happened? Because you're just going to let people down if something big like that doesn't happen. And so we keep our mouths shut. uh, And it's on a need to know basis internally, uh, sometimes just with Steve and me. And nobody else knows until they need to know. And we'll bring Coach in the, in the loop, knowing that he was probably going to be all for it, which he was, uh, with both uh, Hop and JJ. And so it was um, super important to them that the, the announcement, uh, you know, it was important to JJ that he made his announcement. And it was important to the Texans when we did the, the trade that we just decided we're going to keep this buttoned up and we keep our end of the deal. Is the presence of JJ Watt noticeable for you? I know in talking with some of the coaches, they say, Man, when J.J. walks in, everybody kind of stands at attention. Like there's a major difference now in the locker room because the respect that he has. 
the respect and uh, and I think you know his presence of what he does on the field and he's he's very vocal and he doesn't uh, you know he doesn't suffer fools and he he speaks the way he speaks his mind and uh, I also think with him being injured through part of camp he wasn't on the practice field but you know the last week or so he's been on the practice field and you can definitely see the intensity picked up and this is when we need it as we go into week one of the regular season. I love the story from draft night when you flew Zayvon Collins to let him see his hometown from up above and then going from the small town in Oklahoma to Arizona, going from Tulsa to the NFL. And I know it's something you've done and maybe not a lot of it's public in terms of just how much you assist players or whether it's just members of the organization with personal needs or for business purposes, you're always flying. When did that passion start and is this what you envision in terms of how it's played out as the owner of the Cardinals it no I mean it started out when I was a little kid just loving airplanes and liking going with my father on on road trips he would take me I was a good traveler he told me I showed up on time and would pack myself and everything else and could get my little tie on and everything and and go around as a little dude and then sit at the table and not complain when he was out with other owners and uh, so I just love going and he'd tell me what kind of plane we were on and so I love you know aviation from early age his, uh, his good friend and longtime uh, lawyer back in St. Louis purchased a small twin Cessna airplane uh, when um, I was 18. And, and he said, Bill, I don't need the whole airplane. Do you want half to buy half of the airplane with me? And so dad came home and told us about it one night. And, you know, of course, the first thing's out of our mouth. Well, how many pilots on that airplane, Dad? Well, it just needs one. It's a small airplane. Well, what happens if that pilot has a heart attack? Don't you think one of us should uh, be able to fly? And he said, yeah, that's probably a good idea. So the next morning, uh, my older brother, Bill Jr., and I went and signed up for flying lessons. And uh, I've kind of stuck with it. And, and worked up from single engine to multi-engine to now jets and, and actually got my helicopter rating in, in college, despite him saying, no, you can't. I, <laughs> I, I went and did it anyway and then told him about it the day I got my license. And he said, OK, that's fine, but just don't take your younger brother up. <laughs> and, and so anyways, but no, it, it started back then and, and, and worked my way up to where when I joined the team back in the in the mid-90s. I was going uh, to uh, NFL meetings with my father, and we, you know, he was so recognizable at the time. We couldn't really have conversations in the uh, on the airlines about the content of those meetings, and so it was like, you know, really for, you know, so that we can make, have more effective time of our travel time outside the office. We ended up purchasing a small corporate jet, and I started flying it then, and and worked our way up. But it's been my pleasure. I mean, there are a few things you can do in making this a special day for our our top picks and uh and and also when people lose a loved one you know and we're on a tight football schedule if i can send a coach out and or a player out and get them back so they can be with their family be at a ceremony and a, and a funeral and then back here um you know i try to do those things for for our folks because it's 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 a time when they you know they need to be here but they also need to be home and if we can squeeze down the time by just getting them in and out and and back here the you know it seems to be the right thing to do as well Michael, you mentioned packing, putting on your tie, going to the meetings with your dad. Was that, do you have other early memories 
of the Cardinals, I assume a lot of those were with your dad. A ton of them. You know, I mean, my, my earliest memory was uh, Lake Forest College where the Cardinals would have training camp. I remember, boy, I bet I was four or five years old. I mean, it was a, not much of a memory there, but I remember just seeing the training table and realizing we could eat as much as we wanted, <laughs> which was <laughs> not what happened at home. And, uh, and so uh, when we got home the following week and told mom, well, we want waffles, pancakes, eggs, you know, and she was like, you get one thing, kid. So uh, <laughs> in any case, um, no, but that, that's that's my earliest memory. And, and we grew up around it. And it, it was just special times and being able to spend all that time with dad and around some of these legends that have been around the Cardinals franchise and legends that are around the NFL. It's been a real uh, honor to be a part of it. I have a lot of great memories of your dad. There are three that really stick out. The first was when I got hired in 2002. I was 29 years old. I had done the Bills preseason games, but I was also doing Syracuse. And so I was close with Dick McPherson, who had coached the Patriots at one point, and obviously coached Syracuse, and he knew your dad. And he knew that I was trying to get a job. So I had him call your dad and, and talk to him. And I came and interviewed, and I met you and Ron Miniger and sat in with your dad for about a half an hour. One of the first things out of your dad's mouth, he goes, can you, can you stop having these old retired coaches call me? <laughs> and I'm like nervous. He's totally just busting my chops, but it was yeah. hilarious. Um, he, he, he went to Georgetown. I went to Syracuse. So yep. there's the rhyme there. He knew that. He brought it up. Uh, his great friend Val Pinchback, right? He talked right. a lot about Val, who was a Syracuse guy who put together the NFL schedule yep. uh, for years. And um, another time was in 2004 when I got hired by ESPN, and you and your dad were kind enough when I came to you guys and said, look, I, I want to keep doing the Cardinal games. I have this other opportunity. Are you guys okay with this? And you guys were like, yep, don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. Right. And here we are 18 years later, so I've always appreciated that. And the last one is the Super Bowl. Because your dad, a lot of times, would just come sit down and talk. Your dad had a great knowledge of broadcasting. He loved broadcasting. He knew everything about radio and television. And he sat down with Wolf and I right before the Super Bowl. Um, and we were almost late for the bus. Your dad has rolling. He was telling great yeah. stories from the old yeah. days. Where, But then I, Wolf and I kind of looked like, we've got to go, we've got to go. Right. Then I'm like, wait a second. They're not leaving without him. So right. he can talk as long as he wants. But uh, I, I had so many great memories of just being around your dad. I had a great sense of humor would always bust my chops whenever I saw him. He loved to tell stories, and he was a little bit of our secret weapon when we were moving into the new stadium. You may remember this. Um, we had that relocation process in which we invited all of our season ticket members to come into uh, the training facility and select their seats for State Farm Stadium, so when it was going to open. And so Dad just loved to tell stories, and we'd have a new group coming in about every 30 minutes or so. And so I'm like, Dad, when you get to the office, can you just – go out to the lobby and be yourself we'll, we'll put in and so he would go out there and i still hear today from season ticket members remembering you know your dad not only told me these great stories in the lobby but he also helped me pick out my tickets uh for my seat location because we knew approximately what was left on the day we got our appointment and uh he helped pick the seat so i hear that from time to time and i'm so glad because you know he was such a quiet person from you know, a public persona sure. standpoint. Right. But if you got to know him and you could just sit down one on one with him, he won everybody over. And oh, I yeah. know all those fans that got a chance to visit with him uh, back in 2005 when 2006 when we were doing that. Uh, they were they were pretty. Uh, he left a good impression. I want to get into the stadium, but I want to go back to you talking about your earliest memories as a Cardinal. You were a ball boy. Did you have a favorite player? Because you've seen 
every single person come through this organization over the last 50 years? I, I think probably, you know, all the stars at the time, probably the one I was, you know, we loved Larry Wilson. He was such a playmaker. And I remember when we found out he was going to retire and asking my dad, like, how, how are we going to be able to do this without Larry Wilson being one of the players? How are we going to be able to win football games? What's the team going to be like without such a great player and a great leader? And I know he and my dad had a fondness, and then he you know, came to the front office, and then uh, later in life was lucky enough to work with him. So I'd say Larry, but you know, Dan Deardorff, Jim Hart, uh, Mel Gray, uh, Otis Anderson, who went and finished his career with, with the Giants, uh, so many different players that uh, were, were terrific. Pat Tilly was another receiver. Uh, Roy Green came along later in, in 1979. Um, but as I grew up and then, you know, started actively working as a ball boy, there were some real characters, too. And uh, I remember uh, one player who, who played, for, I think, three seasons with us from like 78 to 80, John Bearfield. And this guy referred to himself as Dr. Doom. He was a linebacker and just a character. And I just remember in 78, we drafted him in the second round and that you know, I heard he's going to show up and he wears a quarter in his ear, which are like, why? Why would he wear a quarter in his ear? And it was in case he needed change to make a phone call or something. I don't know. <laughs> but he always carried this quarter. He was kind of a quirky guy. But when the when the uh, drivers were going to pick him up when he flew in for training camp, there was a car crash and it stopped traffic on the freeway, and he was able to go and with just sheer strength pry open the door and get these people out of the car. And it was kind of a local big story at the time that here's this big football player saves these folks and they are able to get them to the hospital and they were survived and everything, but everything turned out. But there were lots of uh, great players and lots of great characters. There was Stafford Mays, uh, David Galloway. They're two defensive linemen. And I, I worked with uh, Rudy Feldman, who was the um, linebackers coach. So we were constantly around the defensive linemen and around the linebackers, as I was during practice. And those were a couple of real characters, too. Just fun guys. And, uh, you know, the, the, the offensive line, defensive line, d- terrific leaders as well. I mean, I, I remember Dan Dieterdorf's leadership was he didn't mess around. And, you know, he when he put his fist down and he was a pretty vocal guy and it was good to have him in our locker room for sure. You talked about big personalities. I work with one of those guys, Ron Wolfley. This is your 17 working with him, which is crazy. And you've known Wolf forever. Back then when he was playing, what stood out to you about his uniqueness as a player and as a person? Ron Wolfley, total character. We drafted him in 1985. I think at that point, I was no longer a ball boy at that point, but I was still around the organization in the summers doing other front office work. But when he got there, you could tell there's something different about this guy. He had a wild look about himself, and uh, in you know he was all in on football and all in on being tough, and he wanted to make a name for himself. So he was going full go all the time, and uh, he loved playing special teams. He loved blowing up that wedge. He loved being a part of all of the you know the tough, gritty, nasty parts of the the game of football. He was in there sticking his nose, leading from you know with his chin on all those plays and just loved the, the, you know, the, the physical aspects of it. So, uh, and I remember when, when the club moved, it was, he was, I guess, a third year at the end of 87. I was in law school at the time, but uh, I heard from my brothers, he showed up to help pack boxes to move and literally loaded them up on the truck. I did not know that. Yeah. 
Yeah. That, that, so, that doesn't surprise me, knowing Wolf. With so his Wolf big was heart, like, but that's... let's get out of here. We're going to Phoenix. So uh, <laughs> he was, uh, you know, just a blast. We had you on during one of the preseason telecasts, and so fans that were watching it got to see it. They won't be able to see it now, but they can go check it out. A picture that Kyler Murray gave to honor your father. Can you tell us about that and what it was like when they presented it to you? How shocked were you when you saw it? Because it's pretty cool. Yeah, no, so he dropped it off, and it was actually a painting that he had commissioned of my father uh, with a number of uh, former players uh, in it and, and him. Uh, it was it was very um, touching. I think, uh, you know, I was blown away by it. He, he had... Um, you know, like family friend that that painted it, and just I thought captured my father's expression perfectly. And actually, uh, Dan Deardorff called me and and uh, said he had seen it on flight plan or on our social media or something, and uh, thought it was just awesome. And he was honored to be one of the players that was painted into that that painting. So uh, I told Kyler, I said, look, I I can't think I was wanted. To talk to my siblings but we couldn't think of a better place to to hang it but we we've hung it in our family's suite uh our loft at the stadium so it's hanging up there so those players and dad can can be there with us and uh celebrate all those cardinals victories so we we moved some other photographs family photographs out of there because we wanted to feel like real family space and uh a little bit kind of suite and living room sort of at the same time so it's got a warm feeling to it and i think it works perfectly in there you, you mentioned law school and i for people that maybe are listening that aren't Cardinal fans are just NFL fans or sports fans that don't realize that you were a federal prosecutor. And so you were not part of the organization your entire adult life, but eventually you came back in 1996, you became president and now owner. What went into that decision 25 years ago to leave a pretty good gig and come back to be part of the Cardinals organization? Well, you know, my father gave great advice and normally it came in you know, two-minute segments. He didn't need an hour to give his great advice. But I remember we were playing a preseason, or it was a regular season game, uh, and it was it was in November of '86. Uh, and he said, "What are you doing next year when you graduate?" And you know, typical senior. I'm like, well, I don't know. <laughs> and uh, he, he, you know, and I, and my brother was already working for him. And he said, "Well, I think one of you, one of you kids has got to be a lawyer. You should go to law school." And we talked about it for another maybe 30 seconds. Next day, I signed up for the LSATs and took them, uh, you know, four weeks later and went to law school. In my third year of law school, I I ended up clerking at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington, D.C. in the homicide unit during the time that D.C. was the murder capital of the world. And so it was a real uh, wake up uh, and, and got to see some really tough, tough stuff and work on some really tough cases. And I fell in love with the idea of, of working in this this area. So I applied for the position. There was an open position out here in Phoenix. And um, I got the job. Spent six years at the U.S. Attorney's Office here as a federal prosecutor. The title is Assistant U.S. Attorney. So I was an AUSA for six years in the violent crime unit here. And um, it was much different than anything I was doing. But one day I woke up and you know it was like, you know, I tried a bunch of homicide cases and things like that. And I realized you know, I don't feel like I'm growing anymore. And one day I woke up and realized time for me to probably move on. So I set up lunch with dad and again, another one of those really short conversations. And uh, he said, well, you know, I need help with the stadium. And, um, and so we started talking about it. And I put in my uh, notice the, the next day 
and went to a preseason game. That was in August of uh, 1996, and then joined the team in November and, and started working on our, our stadium effort then. The organization has undergone a tremendous transformation, uh, and you're at the head of that over the last 25 years. And you mentioned the stadium. I assume that it's on the list when you talk about your proudest moments. Uh, what are some of the other ones over the, over the 25 years that, that you've been with the team again? Well, other than the last, you know, couple minutes of that game down in Tampa. <laughs> that was the best game of my life. Um, but I wish, you know, wish we could have gotten right back there. And, and same thing in 2015. But I, I, I think State Farm Stadium, the sellouts we've had, the great memories, uh, the great games, uh, being able to host two and a third Super Bowl to come soon, plus getting the Final Four here and another Final Four on its way. Uh, there's so many great memories out there. And then just being able to build the team and, and build the culture here. Uh, and it and it was you know there were as we sort of grew up with now having the stadium once once we got it in 2006, and being able to have those revenues and the ability to build things, there there are a lot of great memories. I'm really proud of our people. I'm proud of some of the coaches that have gone on to become head coaches in the NFL. I'm proud of uh, you know other other successes that we've had with people who've who've left the Cardinals and gone on to have great success. Um, and I'm. I'm I'm just excited about every year having the chance to build something, uh, which is pretty special. And I think this year could be pretty darn special. This draft, uh, the the first round, you know, Zavin has hit the ground running, and he's going to be not just a contributor but a leader. Secondly, I think you're seeing what Rondell Moore's done second round. Third round, trading for Rodney Hudson, who's plug-and-play and really lifted the, um, the, the performance of that offensive line. And then Marco Wilson is is uh, just an amazing. So this draft, when you look at it, uh, you know, in in our history, it, I think it's going to turn out to be a hell of a draft. Plus the free agents we've added, you know, AJ and JJ, um, we should expect some great things. And the the person I should be talking about a lot here is Matt Prater, uh, having a great kicker. You know, we lost three games by just a few points, field goals last year. Being able to make those, I mean, each year you look at special teams winning or perhaps not contributing to a win of three games. So I, I kind of chalk up that Matt Prater is going to be helping us win uh, three games this year at least. The new partnership with BetMGM and the longstanding relationship with Gila River. For season ticket holders or people who are just going to go to an occasional game at State Farm Stadium, what will the sports betting experience be like for them at State Farm Stadium? Well, I think to the extent that um, – Fantasy football elevated people's interest in the NFL and in players. Uh, I think uh, sports betting is going to do the same thing. It's prevalent around the world, in Asia, uh, South America, in Europe. And it's just not been so here in in the United States until a Supreme Court case struck down uh, a federal law and allowed states to begin passing their own uh, statutes and Arizona's done that this year. We figured it was that the legislature would pass it. It's a good thing for the state because it expands the gaming compacts with the Indian communities here in Arizona that allows more revenue to come to the state to pay for education and roads and public safety and things along those lines. But for football fans, you know, the average bet's about 10 bucks. So to the extent that people are building their fantasy teams, and, you know, moms are playing with kids and it's connecting families in a different way, and now all of a sudden, 
everybody knows. I mean, my nephew knows more about some of the other teams and players on other teams because he plays fantasy football. I don't have the time to do it. <laughs> um, but he knows more about some of the, you know, the, the great players out there in the league uh, than I do, especially the ones outside of our conference. So, um, but that's going to make that interest when you can have a 10 buck bet on it, it's going to make it a little deeper. So I think it's going to be uh, really good for the interest. And I think it's going to become more acceptable as more and more states do this. And as people can choose whether they choose to participate in it or not, uh, I won't be. I, I just don't bet. And we also have NFL restrictions that affect sure. you and me and yep. the players and the coaches. So I, I won't be doing it, but I think it's going to be great for the fans. In 2019, you received the Paul Tagliabue Award for your leadership in the area of career development for minorities and advocating for diversity. The Cardinals have been always at the top in terms of providing opportunities for everybody. Right. Uh, I think of early on in my tenure here when you had Dennis Green as a head coach and, and Rod Graves as the general manager. Are you seeing the growth and the change around the league in terms of diversity that you hope for? Absolutely. I think we're seeing it. Uh, we've, we've implemented, I'm also on the uh, diversity committee for the league, and we've implemented some, some new policies that uh, over the last two to three years, uh, some pretty big steps uh, we made in terms of those policies, and they expand the Rooney rule uh, from just not coaches, but also general managers. But there, there are other positions as well. And we've really tried to put an emphasis on having people step back and think about w- why wouldn't we have a diverse pool of applicants for every position we have. So we very intentionally, our chief people officer, Sean Mayo, very intentionally looks for a diverse uh, group of of, uh, candidates and make sure that they can do the job we're asking them to do. But we want diversity there, not just in terms of color, but also of sex. You know, we want women in positions that maybe have traditionally been held by men. So we're going to be doing a lot of different things Uh, and, and, and not doing. We are doing them. But I also think the other teams are doing it. And we're being very intentional. We also know, look, the NFL leads in a lot of different areas. We see other leagues doing it. And we see other industries citing the NFL's rule. In fact, you see in corporate America, they're calling it the Rooney Rule uh, in corporate America. So there's a big emphasis, and I think we've got to lead the way here. Last one, and we'll get you out of here. You just were added to the NFL Owners Committee, which negotiates with the NFLPA. Can you talk about that, what that means, and what we can expect? Yeah, so we refer to it as the CEC. It's one of our big four committees, and uh, I'm honored to be on it. It's a limited number of owners that are asked to be on that, and um, and you know I think it's it, it, it's going to be great to be able to uh, be a part of that. You know, there'll be things that come up between now and the next extension, and you know we'll be working on the next extension probably uh, not the the minute before it's going to expire, but years in advance. And so it's good that I can get up to speed on those issues and begin to develop some of the relationships with our, you know, the players on the other side and, um, and, and talk about the issues that are important. But I think in the meantime, it's about growing the game. You know, there's no doubt that we have a bright future. The revenue will grow. The players will share in a greater amount of dollars each year, especially as we get through this uh, transition time that we have with some of the offset for the, the pandemic mm-hmm. costs that the, the, the teams have had to absorb. But uh, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate the time. Thank you, Dave. Man, I could have spent another 30 minutes with Michael listening to some of those great stories. He is living Cardinals history. He has seen it all. Every player, every coach that's walked through here over the last 50 years. I love, too, hearing about his relationship with his dad 
and he and I talking about Mr. B's sense of humor and you know maybe that part of his personality that uh, the world didn't always get to see, but he was such an engaging person once you got to know him. It's clear too, listening to Michael, that his expectations are very high for this year and they match the fan expectation. Everybody thinks the Cardinals should be a playoff team in 2021 and Michael made that clear. The moves that he and Steve Keim made in the offseason were designed to get this team into the playoffs and win the division. He said that is the first goal, winning the division. So it was great to hear Michael's candor and his high hopes for 2021. Coming up later this week, we branch out and get a take on the Cardinals' upcoming opponent from somebody in the world of entertainment. Tennessee Titans diehard James Roday, who also happens to be an award-winning actor from the hit TV show Psych, will join us to talk about the upcoming season and much more. You can follow us on Twitter, at PashPod, and a reminder that we are presented by BetMGM, the official sports betting partner of the Arizona Cardinals and Gila River Hotels and Casinos. Thanks again to Cardinals owner Michael Bidwill. I'm Dave Pash. We'll talk to you soon on the Dave Pash Podcast.